Welcome to The Character of Science, a podcast exploring how films can act as a barometer for how we feel about science. I'm John Roberts, a genetic counsellor and researcher on how to achieve broader public engagement with science. In this episode, we'll discuss the 2011 film Contagion, starring Matt Damon, Kate Winslet, Jude Law and Lawrence Fishburne. It explores, with some prescience, the global response to the outbreak of a novel and highly infectious virus, nearly a decade before anybody would think of a virus before a beer when they heard the word corona. Joining me are Elizabeth Stokoe, Professor of Social Interaction at Loughborough University and member of Independent Sage, Adam Kaczarski, Professor of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at London School of Tropical Hygiene and Medicine, and Heidi Larson, Professor of Anthropology, Risk and Decision Science, and founder of the Vaccine Confidence Project, also at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. As a quick note, this episode was recorded in October 2021, pre-Omicron variant. By the time you are listening to this, the world situation may have changed yet again. Here we explore what it felt like watching this film from the distinctly 2021 perspective, when it truly felt like life was imitating art. Hi everybody. Could we just start with um, your experience of watching uh, Contagion? We watched it twice um, and I've sort of found it quite a a different experience watching it um, sort of since the pandemic. Um, Adam, can I start with you? What was uh, kind of your experience of, of watching it? Yeah, so I know we're going to get into the science um, in a moment, but I think just on the, the top level, I mean, some of those season experiences, you know, the, the sort of supermarkets emptying and bins not being collected, I think there was a lot of, of kind of memories there of uh, obviously what a lot of places have gone through or, or still going through. I think there were also just, just interesting little features of, of the choices they had made about how things are done. I mean, in the film, there's a, a, a birthday lottery system for vaccine allocation. We shall now... Begin the drawing, John. First MEV one vaccination are those people born on March 10th. And we, in a very different way, had vaccines allocated based on birthdays. It was a very clear age rollout, even by down to the year at times in the UK. So slightly different, but but interesting how the film kind of hit upon um, that kind of way of approaching things. I, I think also just, just one thing that struck me was it's only at the end you find out how it originated. And I think that's something that's going to be probably quite relevant to COVID. I mean, it's still not clear and it may well take years. And certainly for SARS, it took quite a while afterwards to pin it down. And you know, all the action kind of happens before you get to that point. So for me, that, that was another sort of quite striking feature in terms of the timeline we, we'll see. Um, Elizabeth, what was it like for you watching watching it back yeah, I, I never saw it the first time round, and I, I probably didn't fancy it much at the start of the pandemic either. It's the Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon. And now, here's your host, Jimmy Fallon. Jude Law, you look great, buddy. Hello. Thank Welcome you so much. Welcome to my home. You know, uh, I was thinking about you because everyone started renting and buying the movie Contagion. It was a movie about a global pandemic yeah. that you made years ago. I, first of all, I found it a little odd that everyone went back to watch that in the middle of the real thing. Right? Yeah. It was like, it's like you just turn on the news. I think we were part way through Handmaid's Tale and I just gave up anything dystopian. If people weren't baking or falling in love, I wasn't really interested. <laughs> um, 
but but I think I, I it was just really strange to watch it and not have that pre-pandemic viewing of it to to kind of compare with because obviously even as a lay person you kind of knew what everything meant already you could predict the arc of it to some extent especially knowing from from you that it was going to be a, a fairly realistic um presentation um so knowing the language you know the, the little scenes where people explain what fomites were so at this point i think we have to believe this is respiratory maybe fomites too what's that fomites uh it refers to transmission from surfaces the average person touches their face two or three thousand times a day in between we're touching doorknobs, water fountains, elevator buttons, and each other. Those things become fomites. And even me as a, as a non-scientist in that regard knew, knew what those things meant. Um, and then I think there was this sort of interesting, you know, blurring then between the film and, and reality. So I think, you know, at the start of the film where you get these sort of lingering shots of, of people touching rails and touching each other and that those kinds of things that you're meant to see as, as, as the virus spreading and it reminded me of the, the public health messaging film. Um, um, I think it was from Israel. Now we've been hearing about the importance of social distancing and hand washing. Now a new public service announcement from Israel clearly depicts the reasons why. <laughs> it starts with a sneeze transferred to a door handle with the virus represented by the color red. A young woman unwittingly picks it up and spreads it to an elevator button and another rider, and so on and so on, through an envelope, an ATM, and a shopping cart handle, until the virus proliferates through an entire city. And there was even quite similar kind of pumping music to it as well, which is quite filmic, even as a, as a real public mm -hmm. health messaging uh, movie. So yeah, I, I think it was a, a really weird experience, to be honest. Heidi, what was your experience of, of watching it? Well, it's interesting because I actually know Larry Brilliant and Ian okay. Lipkin, and they were both telling me about this film they were involved in. Yeah. It kind of informing. So, I, when I finally saw it, I um, knew that so much had gone into it in terms of uh, trying to make it as as credible as possible. Um, it does sort of pile a lot of things into one short movie that may not have happened together. Um, on the other hand, with COVID, um, we've seen that and more can, um, can, can happen. So, you know, we have to put this in context, though, because it was also in the context of a lot of discussions, publications, forums, um, all talking about, are we ready for the next one? When I was a kid, the disaster we worried about most was a nuclear war. If anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war. Now, part of the reason for this is that we have invested a huge amount in nuclear deterrence. But we've actually invested very little in a system to stop an epidemic. There's no need to panic. We don't have to hoard cans of spaghetti or go down into the basement. But we need to get going because time is not on our side. So this wasn't a kind of standalone wake-up call. It was in a context of, you know, well, one, there was the 100 years since uh, H1N1 in, in 1918. We had the, um, the H1N1 2009 pandemic, which wasn't as bad as it could have been, but did get the conversations going. So, uh, but I do think it, 
brings brought a different perspective and complemented and, and gave a different tangible reality to the whole experience of a of a pandemic, which you know anything on print doesn't quite catch it in the same as emotively. And I think something I want to come back to is kind of the emotions because when I first watched it, I was transported back to a very strange moment where I went shopping and um, it just felt weird because our local shop had a kind of, you know, NHS worker hour at the start of the day. And I sort of went in and the cells were sort of half empty and there was a queue because after the NHS hour, NHS hour was the sort of over 60 hours. So I walked past a queue of sort of pensioners and you had to show your NHS badge to get in. And as, as I came out with my thing, there's a kind of a police to the drive-by. And I thought this is really, the first time it struck me is it's, it's life is changing. And I think, um, you know, up until then, sort of the emails from work have been like, oh, we'll, we'll be working from home and maybe we'll probably be back in about two to three weeks. And it sort of felt, oh, this will pass. And it, it, it just transported me back to that quite moment, moment where I thought this is, this is a bit strange. And I think, how it made me feel was one of the things that that hit me the hardest about the film. But something I also want to talk about, and maybe we can go on to next, is how the science is presented. Because as you mentioned, they consulted really heavily with scientists and really tried to get the science right. A new type of movie villain is cashing in at the box office. Contagion was number one in its opening weekend. The Centers for Disease Control worked very closely with the filmmakers to make this pandemic as real as possible. Could it actually happen, though? For that answer, we turn to the director of the CDC, Dr. Thomas Frieden. Good to have you with us this morning. Uh, give us a reality check. How plausible is a scenario like the one that plays out in the film? Actually, it is quite plausible. Do you think... Um, they, they, do you think they got that right? Heidi, if I'm going to come back to you, do you think they, they got the science in a plausible and realistic way? Did it feel, you know, like you were watching a film that respected the science? Well, it's interesting because neither of them are social scientists. They're both pretty clinical, um, you know, and and so it they gave it that evidence base. Um, but I mean, I'm an anthropologist and working a lot on emotions and, and the, the actors brought that to be honest. Um, you know, it might've been interesting to bring in a, a social scientist again, you know, it's not a criticism because I thought all things considered, they, they did a pretty <laughs> real, real job on it, but mm. I, ha I have been working with a group, well, since the avian flu and days, um, uh, a biosecurity group at, at Johns Hopkins. And, you know, one of the things we found is that actually public health authorities tend to uh, underestimate people's ability to cope. Um, it's often uh, featured as they'll be afraid, they'll, they'll, you know, they're, they'll panic. Panic is the operative word. They're closing down Midway and O'Hare. The governor there is calling out the National Guard. They're setting up roadblocks. Congress is figuring out how to work online. When the word goes out, there will be a run on the banks, gas stations, grocery stores, you name it. People will panic. The virus will be the least of our worries. Actually, one of the things we found was the power of hope and how hope as an emotion, the other end of the spectrum from fear, got people through in a way. Italy may be on lockdown, but in at least one city, residents have found a new way to stay together by singing out their windows. This particular song from the city of Siena is an ode to the beauty of the city. Residents actually put a new verse in, which goes like this. 
Even with thunder and lightning, we are not afraid of you, garbage virus. And what we missed in contagion, and just as this is purely, I mean, I suppose you could have gaps and project it, but, you know, 18 months and, and going strong um, is a whole other story also. Not that, again, this is not a critique on the film, but it's another dimension that I think for the next film, <laughs> maybe we can do, you know, looking at one month and three months later and six months later and 12 months later. <laughs> Actually, when you look back around eight, 1918, it was a few years. I mean, in terms of the spread and when it hit India and when it hit different parts of the world. Um, so that part, perhaps we shouldn't have been so as surprised as we seem. I, th I think um, a point about, you know, uh, it being clearly scientists from a kind of epidemiological point of view who were consulted and perhaps um, how the film would have been different if there were sort of social scientists. Elizabeth, I, I want to come back to you at, at that point. Um, just while we're sticking to the science, Adam, you've done a lot of work, you know, as a sort of epidemiologist, um, and I sort of see you on Twitter kind of trying to make the science understandable. What did it feel like for you watching the film that had clearly tried really hard to get the science right? Did it did it feel like it hit, hit the mark? I mean, it's 10 years old as well, so things may have moved on, but did it feel like they they got that right from your perspective? So I think you get some, some of the, or a lot of the details very well done um and it was obviously yeah at the time when it came out it was helpful for epidemiologists that we could say you know we're, we're sort of kate winslet and people sort of <laughs> understood um what we meant what we need to determine is this for every person who gets sick how many other people are they likely to infect we call that number the r naught r stands for the reproductive rate of the virus once we know the R naught, we'll be able to get a handle on the scale of the epidemic. But there's there's a couple of big things that it gets very wrong. And in epidemic, you don't want to get big things wrong. One is just the time scale is, is completely off that. I think it gets up to millions of infections within a week or two. And if you had an outbreak that was genuine, genuinely on that trajectory, it would essentially just sweep through a population in about a month. Mm. So it you know the, the sort of time, I mean, I, I get the dramatic reasons why they're doing it. But there's another bit where um, I think where, where it mutates and then the R0 goes up to about four and they say... As of right now, the mortality rate is fluctuating between 25 and 30%, depending upon underlying medical conditions, socioeconomic factors, nutrition, fresh water. With the new mutation, we are predicting an R0 of no less than four. And without a vaccine, we can anticipate that approximately one in 12 people on the planet will contract the disease. Even the average person now with experience of COVID will know that that's not what's going to happen. If your Arnold is four, you're going to get a lot more than one in 12 people. And a little bit of me wonders whether the filmmakers almost just shied away from the implications of what they were laying out. Um, if you had a 25 to 30% fatality rate with an Arnold of four, you'd be talking about billions of deaths. And I think in the film, it's in tens of minutes. So I, I sort of wonder if that's almost, they just didn't want to go too far down that line because the implications are just too horrifying. And I think we saw a lot of countries early in COVID similarly just couldn't think through the implications of what they were facing. Um, one thing that actually I remember when it first came out, got criticised, but turned out to be remarkably prescient, was when it mutates, 
someone looks at a phylogenetic analysis, so basically an evolutionary tree of different viruses. And at the time, they had like six viruses on that plot, because I guess that was the, the cutting edge. And there's no way you could work out if something's more transmissible if you've just got six viruses scattered around the world. But of course, when um, the alpha variant, the, the variant from Kent emerged, that was exactly the sort of analysis people did because we had thousands of these viruses. Um, and I think it was also just coincidental. I think that emerged in the film just before Christmas as well, which is another just little coincidental touch that you did have something that became more transmissible. Have you ever seen anything like this before? No. And it's still changing. It's figuring us out faster than we're figuring it out. It doesn't have anything else to do. Um, I think I mean, the other thing that is quite striking, so the, the whole time scale of the film is about four months. As, as Heidi's already mentioned, COVID is going on much longer because countries have pushed infections much further into the future, which is a good thing because we've now got vaccines. But again, maybe it's that people, people just couldn't visualise that an epidemic could go on for years. Um, but it is striking the vaccine in the film comes after about 100 days. The Food and Drug Administration is accelerating approval of the MEV1 vaccine currently in production at five secret locations in the US and Europe, saying the first doses could be available for human use within 90 days. Which is now what governments are trying to lay out for the next pandemic, this 100 day plan. And it also raises an issue which was hit on the film of how do you demonstrate efficacy? Because of course, if you work on those timescales, the next pandemic, we might not have big clinical trials by that point. So it's that the sort of human challenge, those kinds of issues. So although as it was as it was put out, you know, I disagree with some of the timescale, actually it hits on certain and slightly more ambitious objectives that governments are now very much converging on. That's an, another important point, Adam. They also didn't have a modeler in their advisory group. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with the development of the vaccine, something that bothered me slightly about the film was that I think um, with uh, the um, kind of doctor who created the vaccine, she kind of broke the walls and injected herself. What are you doing? It's okay, Dad. No, it's not okay. Do you remember Dr. Barry Marshall? Thought that bacteria caused ulcers, not stress? Gave himself the bug and then cured himself? You taught me about him. I'm testing my vaccine. It felt like to me we were just veering off into the kind of hero scientist narrative. And I quite liked the fact that the hero to that point seemed to be effective bureaucracy and systems in place, properly funded science, you know, effective healthcare messaging. That seemed, which I, I quite liked. And then it sort of for dramatic purposes just kind of veered off and you kind of had the hero kind of injecting herself because they, you know, to increase the timescales. And that just, I don't know if, if that for anybody else, that just, just niggled me slightly in terms of you know um you know how, how the development of the vaccine was presented in i suppose in their defense um I, I agree completely with that example but i think there's also that earlier example i can't remember the guy's name who um doesn't get rid of his cultures dr sussman i heard that they were shutting us down now i just have to deal with these samples if it's just a matter of destroying them i can do it no i'll take care of it you go on home if you look back through history there are examples of people who've hang on hanged on to samples that they probably shouldn't have and have learned some things much faster as a result. So I, I don't know who in the, the advisory group might have flagged those, but there are some, some histories of things being kept in fridges and freezers, um, yeah, perhaps not in the greatest way. So I think, I think you're completely right about that hero side, but there are people who 
have probably bent the rules a little bit in the past as well. And, and it's a film, right? It's got to, it's got to yeah. have, you've got to have dramatic moments. And, and I, I think as I wanted to come back to kind of um, Elizabeth, just kind of talking about whether or not if they had a social scientist advising how much it would be different. Cause I like Heidi, your point about hope and about how actually, you know, a lot of the times in films, the kind of um, dramatic tension comes from the sort of society collapse and kind of everyone sort of, um, you know, uh, panics and fears the overwhelming kind of emotion that's driving them. But actually, although we did see panic buying and we did see a lot of fear and uncertainty, as you say, there was also a lot of hope as well. Elizabeth, do you think it would have been different if there was a sort of, you know, social scientist involved and who could have perhaps given a bit more of an input into kind of, you know, uh, you know, how actually people will react in those situations? Or do you think that always needed to be that just for the film to have the kind of narrative drive that it did? There are a couple of points to, to come back to. The, the hero scientist one is interesting because obviously some of the individual characters along the way for lots of different reasons kind of bent or broke the rules. So either self for selfish reasons or for altruistic reasons. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. So Cheever's uh, telling his wife to leave the city. I want you to get in your car and leave Chicago. I want you to drive here to Atlanta, drive by yourself. You do it, you do it now. Don't tell anyone and don't stop and stay away from other people. And giving the vaccine to, I think, the janitor's son. And, um, you know, I think the Jude Law character kind of calling out the, the Lawrence Fishburne character for for his own, you know, looking after his own family. Um, but a sort of whiff of special treatment and, and politicians and the Cummings affair, you know, sort of yeah. bending the rules to suit yourself. If you check on Facebook, you'll find a communique attributed to Dr. Cheever by Elizabeth Nygaard about the quarantine of Chicago hours before it was announced to the public. That's why I think he's a bit disingenuous when he says equal care for all and not just his friends. I thought that was that was kind of interesting. And then and then going back to Heidi's point about um, hope and, and social science. And and I think what we what we did see was, you know, some of the maybe the psychology of collective behaviour and crowd psychology and the way uh, you know <laughs> mass hysteria and panic can happen. But what we didn't see, and maybe this would be you know, more boring because, I mean, we kind of commented a bit on this on this at the time that, you know, we didn't see many mun mundane stories of people helping each other. So we didn't see the positive effects of collective psychology so much where people were helping each other out a lot and community support and outstanding stories of care for each other. My name is Tiffany Parks. I'm an American citizen living in Rome, Italy for the past 15 years. There's an expression here, which is menefreghismo, which means sort of like... I don't give a damnness, if, if that could be a word. And it's just sort of this attitude of like, whatever, I don't care. I'm going to do what works for me. And I think that this whole thing that we're going through together as a country right now could change that to some extent. And I think that I, I see people coming together sort of for this collective good of the country. And there's an expression that's uh, sort of floating around on so Italian social media, which is we're going to stand far from each other now so that we can embrace each other later. We didn't really see that and maybe that's just not very interesting from from a film perspective. Um, so I thought I thought those two things were were sort of interestingly absent and, and also of course you know, the concept as you were saying of of behavioral fatigue that everyone worried that people would just get sick of it and, and all the evidence showed that people weren't but again these are things that might not really suit the narrative. Um, I, I think in terms of communication type stuff um, more broadly. 
I, I kind of looked at it to think about is, is any of the dialogue realistic? Is this how people actually talk to each other? And I think that's really quite hard to say. But but of course, they use dialogue a lot to convey information. And, you know, there were things like um, what Lawrence, the Lawrence Fishburne character says to Kate Winslet. What's your single overriding communications objective? And they obviously use dialogue to convey all sorts of things um, really, really deeply in, in the film. So, yeah, I, I think the, the communication and dialogue side of it and the more social science psychology side of it um, could have been could have been amplified. But then maybe it wouldn't have been such a you know heart pounding film. I, I remember that um, Charlie Brooker made this point. He did his, his viral work about a year ago and he said, you know, he'd been sort of you know grown up on kind of you know, dystopian films and expected society to fall apart. And then, you know, when it actually happened. You know, everyone seemed to sort of come together and get through it. And you're like, well, what? <laughs> that, that wasn't what I was expecting. And I was wondering as well, Elizabeth, just sticking with that theme, we've sort of uh, sort of pivoted slightly now with, with kind of opening up and the relaxation of restrictions, going from a sort of, albeit, you know, an imperfect but, you know, centralised messaging from the government about kind of we need to get through this together to a kind of individual responsibility individual choices about you know things like uh, masks and vaccines our, our government clearly has a kind of quite libertarian sort of default setting that i think it's kind of falling back to do you see that changing in terms of you know things like people wearing masks and um you know people resisting vaccine passports do you sort of see that 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 unity slipping away as it goes more to kind of individual decisions or do you think there's enough of kind of momentum for us to kind of keep that going. I think it's difficult because obviously you only have to look around you to see that people are still doing quite a lot of the mitigations that aren't legally mandated anymore, just despite the fact that they're not legally mandated. But but the idea of, of unity is really hard to talk about since we don't have a clear, we don't have that clear message to either adhere to or, and comply with or, or not. So what people um, are, are doing, it's, it, you know, it's hard to know what why they may or may not be, for example, wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. It might not be mm. because they um, are now thinking, they're not thinking so collectively, but just because they're following the rather mixed messaging about masks now. Mm. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know if others see this, but I, I feel like I see this fairly often where you'll see people go into a building and wash their hands, but they haven't got a mask on. So they're obviously thinking, well, you know, I'll, I'll keep washing my hands because that's really important. Um, and, and, and I think there was a YouGov poll uh, a few weeks ago showing that people just thought that hand washing was more important anyway than masks. So so it's, it's really hard to get a sense of what people are doing now for what reasons, because the context in which they're doing it is is so messy. Mm. It does feel messy. I went, I, it struck me when we went to France and everyone is just, it's still mandatory to wear your mask and you show your vaccine passport. And it, to me, it didn't feel obtrusive, but it felt just, it felt, it felt much cleaner and simpler. And then kind of coming back to the UK and it was just kind of the, the, the uncertainty kind of coming back with that kind of, that sort of struck me. Mm. I had a similar experience going to Scotland a couple of weeks ago where you're going into pretty much every, every shop and cafe, everyone was still wearing a mask and doing the, the you know, the very visible sign, because that is one of the most visible signs of, 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 Doing a mitigate, you know, doing a behaviour that, that mitigates transmission, uh, and then as you sort of came further south, it just all sort of went away. Yeah, because because I guess obviously the mask is, you know, designed to reduce transmission, but it is also a sort of signal of social unity. It's this, if everyone's doing it, we're all showing each other that we're in this together, and sort of I wonder once you sort of lose that kind of what what the implication is going to be. But I guess we'll, we'll have to to see. The, one of the things I wanted to kind of move on 
talk about was the presentation of misinformation. The temperature's 101. Higher than it was earlier. My head hurts. My throat feels like it's closing. This is for Scythia. I've been taking it since the onset of the symptoms. If I'm here tomorrow, you'll know it works. Tree serum now, I'm Alan Crumwitty. Obviously, it felt slightly dated, being from 2011. I don't think it quite, for example, um, showed the role of social media. Look, Where did get you away from, from here, Alan. Military, you're not a doctor and you're not a writer. Organism. Yes, I am a writer. Yes, I am. Blogging is not writing. It's graffiti <laughs> with punctuation. The idea that there's a huge amount of fear and uncertainty, and that is kind of, you know, uh, a major risk factor for the sort of spread of misinformation. They trust me. All 12 million unique visitors. I'm a trusted man stepping up to a microphone in front of a very large crowd. I say the right thing. Nobody shows up for their shot. Maybe they'd rather roll the dice with Pacifia. I could make that happen. Uh, Heidi, I think, you know, with your experience of the kind of the vaccine confidence project, do, do you find that there are certain um, kind of risk factors in terms of, you know, things that can um, spread misinformation, both about vaccines, but also kind of science in general? Well, what, what's been interesting, I mean, we've been following the vaccine confidence landscape for 12 years now, and particularly adding social media in the last five. And we saw beyond, I mean, in 2018, I wrote a commentary for Nature during this round of everyone talking about 100 years of pandemics and are we ready? And I had written a piece saying the biggest, one of the biggest pandemic risks will be viral misinformation. Um, but to be honest, I never imagined it could have been as, as bad as it's become. Um, we have seen um, the vaccine conversations, as it were, go way beyond um, it, any previous groups. I mean, they're, they're really embedded in everything from, you know, anti this to anti that to anti whatever. Um, and, and it's understandable because it's in, I mean, you hear people who would never think of taxi drivers, shopkeepers, hairdressers. I mean, everybody's talking about vaccines. Look, I'm sorry, guys. It's for health reasons. I can't get vaccinated because I'm allergic to shellfish. Clyde, there's no shellfish in the COVID vaccine. I know, but I read that sometimes in the lab where the vaccine is made, if somebody ate shellfish, that it can get cross-contaminated and have leftover residual shellfishness. So you're saying you won't take the COVID vaccine out of shellfishness? So it's been a challenge. It's been a real challenge. And actually, one of the things that we're looking at now is to see what's going to be the knock-on effect for vaccines more broadly in terms of misinformation. Because uh, on the other hand, it's a huge opportunity, um, as was mentioned earlier, you know, the the opportunity for public education on how you make a vaccine. How many people knew that before it took over 10 years to go from the bench to, you know, now everybody seems to be an expert on it. I, I think the big challenge, too, and I, I spend a lot of time talking people at Facebook and YouTube and different tech platforms looking for guidance on, you know, where do we draw the line on misinformation? Because a lot of it's not misinformation. I mean, that's been one of the big challenges with COVID is 
even the science is new every day and, and the uncertainty that, you know, anyone who, any government that wags their finger at Silicon Valley and says, stop the misinformation, doesn't have a clue what that means and what that involves. It's about doubt. It's about uncertainty. It's about anger. It's about all kinds of stuff that it's not that simple. Because mm. something that struck me about it is, coming from a kind of you know genetic counseling background when i'm trying to sort of talk to patients about how they understand whatever you know aspect of the genetic test my first starting point is normally to under- try and understand how they're feeling because that will shape everything in terms of how they understand yeah. the information that i'm then giving them you know as, as a you know as an example you know if i'm giving someone a, a risk in pregnancy of say one in a hundred um you know if i need i need to understand is it you know is it a wanted pregnancy if if, did they have IVF you know what are their views on disability you know all those things will will you know tell me what their feelings are and then I can start to get to a point to help them understand the the information in front of them that's that's easily done when you're just one-on-one with the patients but it seems incredibly hard when you're talking about you know uh an entire population what's the role in terms of understanding people's feelings and emotions in terms of then combating misinformation well, I think uh, you're an enlightened genetic counselor, by the way, because I don't think most um, uh, health professionals, there's, they're more focused on the clinical advice or the diagnostic or the prognosis or whatever, and less on you know, who they're talking to or their emotional state. So congratulations. <laughs> um, but it's, it's hard, but there are ways. And, and actually, we've used a lot of, I mean, that's one place that social media you know, it gets emotions in ways that you'll never get it through a survey. Um, just the whole nature of the reflective nature of having to answer a question and is, is different than when you're spontaneously looking at what the emotions are. Um, so there are ways to try to put your finger on the pulse of some of the emotions. But again, you know, they're so... They're so different for different groups, for different people, for their backgrounds, for what they've been through. Um, and I think a lot of people don't think about immune systems um, like emotions are learned. Um, we are, all four of us have very different emotional um, reactions, uh, potentially um, emotional training, as it were, like our immune systems have been through different things. So. You know, you can pick up your general sense of, of fear at certain moments and, and moments where there's a bit more hope, but you should never assume that the person you're talking to happens to be what the general se- overall emotional landscape is. I call it the emotional mm. weather. <laughs> mm. I, I love that metaphor. That's really nice. Adam, you're quite active on you know, social media, you do a lot of tweeting. And I notice, you know, you do get a lot of comments beneath you, you know, if you especially if you do something, you know, trying to explain stuff that, uh, you know, um, is is controversial for whatever reason, because, you know, people feel strongly about it. What's your experience of kind of trying to do science communication and having such sort of turbulent emotional weather, if you like, and, and, and trying to present science in a clear way with, you know, all the challenges that social media presents? Yeah, I, I think it's hard. Um, I think social media, yeah, I mean, just the way it's designed, it incentivizes knee jerk. You know, if I'm, I'm pretty sure if Twitter, you had to sit on a tweet for 10 minutes and think it through before you were allowed to post it, people would probably behave very differently. Um, 
But what was striking for me actually is, I mean, a lot of the stuff that, that I've tried to do during the pandemic is just just give people a good sense of what situation we're facing, what the dynamics are, what the implications of options are. You know, if people want to put forward some potential strategy, I think they need to be aware of what the implications of what they're actually proposing. Um, but the, probably the two occasions where I got, it really got to overwhelming levels of angry messages. One was in the run up to Christmas when, you know, I, I wasn't loudly telling everyone they couldn't have it, but I was, I was saying, look, these are the risks of having these kinds of intergenerational gatherings, mm-hmm. given where we are in the epidemic. And that just seemed like an unacceptable message. I think I, it, it was almost just people just weren't ready, weren't going to hear that. Um, the other one was uh, more, more recently with the emergence of Delta. And yeah, this, this kind of message of we're not in the alpha epidemic, which basically vaccines would go a long way to eliminating. We've got a new epidemic, which means we're going to have to deal with this much longer. And again, I think it was maybe it, it comes back a little bit to that sort of thing of hope that you know people have, have got to the point where they think they're in this situation and actually to have someone say this is actually going to look very different. Um, I think for me that that I was quite surprised about the level of that. Um, I think it has generally got better um i think in part because as i mean unfortunately as evidence catches up with you it you know early very early in the 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 pandemic it's always the counterfactual of saying you know this is going to cause hundreds of thousands of of deaths at a time when there's been you know maybe two thousand deaths it's it's a message that a lot of people just won't um won't sort of have much traction with but i think now increasingly you can point to real life, life examples so it's not hypothetical you can say look here's this situation in this country um and i think that makes things more tangible and it, it just it, it probably makes the debate more constructive but the problem of course is you don't really want to be having those horrific examples to point to you know if we want to respond to the next pandemic better we ideally need a situation where we never end up with those kinds of case studies it can be quite intimidating as well. I think if you're on social media and on the you're on the end of that, you say something you don't realise, so you haven't quite taken the emotional weather because you're not quite, you know, aware of quite how people are feeling, and then suddenly you get that 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 backlash, and that kind of brings me on to the, the final thing I wanted to discuss, which is something I'm still thinking through myself, which is the the value and use of pop culture. And we've talked about how accurately the science has been represented and. Pop culture in particular, I think, has a bit of a bad rap for being a source of kind of misinformation, which may often be true. But my view is that there's also a real use of pop culture in terms of it helping us to both think through and process our own emotions, but also to understand the, the kind of the emotional weather, if you like, of the population. If you see something of a kind of recurrent theme in pop culture, there's a sort of a gauge of kind of what people are feeling and what the emotions are of different groups of people and what they're kind of, um, you know, reactions might be so um if we could just end with you know reflection from each of you on, on what you think um the sort of the value of pop culture is do you, do you think that kind of watching films and, and contagion can be kind of a, a useful way for helping people process emotions but also kind of understanding what people are feeling or do you think that actually by and large there's a sort of source of an accuracy there that is less than helpful given that we were you know one of the things we're talking about is how accurate this film is compared to other films um i I think it they can be obviously quite useful and, and as you say cathartic for people. I, I don't know if any of any of you saw this, but um because it's got rewatched such a lot at the start of the pandemic, the cast reunited and, and made a, a, a public health messaging um series of videos with Columbia University. So you've got Matt Damon, um 
So a few years ago, a bunch of us did this movie called Contagion, which we've noticed is creeping its way back up on the charts uh, on iTunes uh, for obvious reasons, given what we're all living through right now. Um, and so the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University reached out to the cast and asked us if we would uh, have a virtual reunion to do some PSAs for everybody that, that might be helpful. And so we readily agreed, and so uh, here they are. Um, so everything you're gonna hear from us has been vetted by public health experts and, uh, and scientists. Um, so I'm here to talk to you about social distancing, something we've been hearing a lot about. So I thought that was kind of a weird loop of reality pop culture back to health yeah. messaging. That, that was nice. It, you know, for me, I just thought the whole experience of watching it was quite strange. And it reminded me of, of other moments in in my own life where sort of you just suddenly realize how media saturated your, your, our experience of everything is. So one of them was being in New York when Hurricane Sandy hit and just sort of feeling like I was right there, you know, experiencing blackouts and and police on every corner but it had because you see so many films shot in New York it had this really strange surreal quality um and the other one was watching what uh, children of men I don't know if you, any of you have seen that film um so from 2006 about an infidelity an infertility epidemic you know I remember at the time watching it thinking it didn't it felt kind of real because we'd started to have moving billboards on the sides of buses and we'd started to have those suspicious seen seen, seen something report it and and, and you, you know it's a, i think i think in in the timeline it's 2027 that film when it's when it's meant to happen um and then I, just just things like the, the misinformation campaign and being as heidi was saying you know the, the level of misinformation being a bit shocking really so in the film it seemed it seemed like a part of the dystopian landscape that would probably go away by the end of the film. Is he with you? What? Who? Are you wearing a wire? Alan, I didn't have a choice. They've seen your blog. Oh. For what? Tell me for what? Security fraud, conspiracy, and most likely manslaughter. It cured me. Forsythia cured me. We'll see, Alan. Whereas, you know, just down the road in my small East Midlands town on the roundabout, there are people with anti-COVID, COVID's a myth. You know, they're just right there at Tesco's. And yeah. it's really strange because they look like they don't. It looks like you're watching a film, but it's actually you, it is your life. So I, I think the whole thing is, is been a really strange experience watching it. I'm glad I watched it, but I don't think I would have watched it <laughs> if we hadn't had this discussion. And I, I won't watch it again quickly. <laughs> It's interesting in itself that it's it's so many people are going back to rewatch it. They must be getting something from it. Kingsley Benadire, you, I know, are a big fan of Contagion, which has suddenly had this new life in lockdown. You just, did you only watch it in lockdown? Yeah, you because it, it, it came up as, like, number one in the world, I most viewed film for that, like, month, obviously. And, yeah, and I watched yeah. it. I'd never seen it before, but it was trippy going, like, oh, shit, they predicted this. Yeah. Did you feel very smug when this all started happening, going, well, yes, this is, <laughs> this is exactly what I was expecting? Well, you know, I did figure out the r naught. Um, <laughs> that a picture of me doing the r naught there? I haven't seen that clip for ages. I look so young, I'm so thin. <laughs> Heidi, what, um, what kind of do you, do you think about the kind of the, the, the use and value? I think Elizabeth's point about how media saturated we are, I mean, there's sort of no way of, of getting a, a, away from it, but kind of in terms of thinking about kind of pop culture, the value and use of pop culture, um, kind of where, where do you stand on that? I think it's helpful. I think it's, uh, I mean, especially when it does have some um, science behind it. Uh, but again, we have to think of it in the context of a lot of other pieces of 
information. And what's nice about the film is it puts it, it gives it a storyline and it gives it a human face. But I wouldn't interpret it. It's interesting how you presented it as, you know, does this help people understand the emotions of pandemics? I would see it much more as something that can help you anticipate, you know, the experience of the epidemic rather than just trying to understand what those emotions, because everyone's going to have slightly different emotions and reactions. But I think that, you know, anticipating what that could be like, um, I think having having been through COVID, it, you know, the reality that this is not just a movie <laughs> um, is uh, people will be looking at films like this, at least people whose life experience somehow touched on um, COVID will will say, yeah, kids, watch this film because, you know, <laughs> you they, or, or when they get a little older, I mean, particularly for little kids who don't totally um, understand why, um, you know, why things are happening the way they are. They know that these things are different, like mommy and daddy are not going to work. My sister's not going to school. I mean, I'm talking about the littler ones that, you know, they should see the film or whatever next one comes down the pipeline, which I'm sure there'll be a few of after COVID, to kind of learn about that part of life. Because frankly, we're going to have a lot more. Climate change, human-animal interface, all of these external forces are pushing us towards a future that needs to be much more ready for pandemics. Mm. And I, I really like that point about sort of films and pop culture being a way to kind of help sort of talk to other people and explain what's what's happening. For me, I think one of the values of pop culture is it gives people a resource with which to, you know, explain how they're feeling. Something that's always struck me with a lot of Margaret Atwood's work, because, you know, she sort of blurs this line between, she, you know, the sort of, um, that sort of slightly scientific realism take, that sort of speculative future that she does. Um, so it sort of feels almost real. Margaret Atwood's novel, published in 1985, is a feminist classic. I've read that you see this as a work of speculative fiction. Speculative fiction is specifically, is we could that? do it. And with The Handmaid's Tale, we could because we have. She says everything she imagined, as awful as it is, has real life historical precedent. The TV show debuted against the backdrop of Donald Trump's America. I mean, thankfully, we're not living in Gilead yet. We're not living in Gilead yet but there are Gilead-like symptoms going on. And last week's White House Correspondents' Dinner, there was even this joke at Sarah Sanders' expense. I have to say, I'm a little starstruck. I love you as Aunt Lydia and The Handmaid's Tale. Fiction is, is, a, is a resource for people to be able to communicate what they think and what they feel and to help people understand you know, their take on it. And I think that is a really useful way that, that stories can kind of help us you know, understand um, you know, uh, how people are responding. Um, I still don't quite know how that, that helps us in terms of thinking about kind of communication, but, you know, sort of where, where I'm at with um, my thinking of pop culture at the minute. Adam, a lot of your work is kind of focused on helping people kind of, you know, get to grips with the science. Do you, do you feel that, like, you know, pop culture is, is a sort of help or hindrance to, to your work? I think in, in ways it can be, you know, it's, it's a, a helpful tool often. And I think I liked Heidi's point about the, the role that these kind of things in, fictional or fictional tries to be very accurate can play in prediction and it's i mean it is striking to me that even though the, the film contagion was meant to be this extreme pandemic event um 
it did shy away from the scenario implications it was actually presenting. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's got some with, with sort of tens of millions of deaths. And if you look at excess mortality uh, on best evidence we have for COVID, we're now in the sort of low tens of millions. Um, and COVID doesn't have a fatality risk of 30%. It has one of, you know, somewhere between a half and 1% in a lot of the countries it's spread. And so I think it's that, that gives some insight you know, into just people's ability to perceive how bad these things could be pre-COVID. Um, but I think also just, just in terms of documenting and understanding what's happened since, I mean, you know, you can look at numbers and you can look at the figures, but I think everyone's gone through a hell of a lot, not just in terms of the direct effects, but, you know, of everything else it, it shaped kind of socially and um, uh, economically and other aspects of health. And I think having that role of culture to, to help people process that and, in years to come just just really make sense of what everyone's gone through and you know ideally inform the debate about how we avoid that happening again thank you all for joining me i've really enjoyed discussing the film and hearing your insights if you haven't watched contagion i do recommend it it's a fascinating experience watching it back having lived through a pandemic yourself Next week, we discuss the concept of heroes and villains in science fiction using the films Ex Machina and The Martian. Do join us for the next episode of The Character of Science.